this episode was recorded in mid-November 2022, and shortly after, in December, Victor suddenly died. So it is with heavy hearts that we're now presenting this one, but um, also appreciative of all the efforts that Victor has put into the Translate Science Initiative and brought us together for us to continue the work now in his legacy. So hopefully you'll be inspired also by his words and our discussion. And let us know what you think. And if you'd like to join Translate Science, um, just reach out and we'll be happy to accommodate you. Hey, another episode of Access to Perspectives Conversations. I'm super happy to be here today with three of my favorite people. All the people that you meet on this podcast are favorite people of some sort. Okay, so, um, so yeah, we're here today with Jennifer Miller, Victor Venema, and Danny Chan talking about a project that also others um, in the community are very passionately working on, and it's called Translate Science. So welcome, Danny, Jennifer, and Victor. Good to have you. Hello. <laughs> okay. Um, Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. So, um, so starting with Translate Science, I I'm, I'm trying to remember when it started. Was it one and a half years ago by now? Something or almost two now? Um, mm -hmm. And Victor, could you give us a quick introduction about what was the starting point? And I think we all have been involved in multilingualism for academia, initiatives, projects. I've been thinking about it in several contexts. But what gave rise to what we now work on as Translate Science? And then later we'll also um, talk about what resources have been um, brought together on the website. But Victor, please mm -hmm. introduce. Yeah. So I have a reasonably nice transition story. I used to work on clouds, um, which is all done in English. Um, and I never gave it any thought publishing in English. Um, and I think many of my colleagues are still this way. Um, but uh, the last 10 years I've been doing climatology, studying weather stations from all over the world to see how the climate has changed. Um, and then you really need to collaborate with people from all over the world, many of whom do not speak English. Um, and then at a workshop in Peru, um, which was mostly in Spanish, I really noticed how it is to be on the other side um, because there was hardly anyone to talk to. Um, but they were doing wonderful science and it was really important to, to connect with these people. Um, so that's when I started thinking about the importance of language. And I had a colleague there who um, regularly translated English articles into Spanish to make them available to their colleagues. And that's more or less started me thinking about the importance of translation. Um, from that moment on, I started collecting resources um, and people behind those resources. And then I think, like you said, about two years ago, I simply wrote an email to all the people I had found in those times. 
and ask them whether they would be interested in some sort of initiative to promote translation of scientific articles. Thank you. Um, yeah, and I and and how did the group come to? Okay, so you invited us by email. I remember that email so vividly. And maybe we just go around um, for Danny and Jennifer. What is your um, connection to translation of research output or multilingualism in academia? Um, Danny, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, so I, I think maybe I found the group um, a, a little less than a year ago, and, and I found it through um, just browsing the internet on the on the Fediverse. Um, and, and I was attracted to it because I've been having discussions with some members of Biotech Without Borders um, who are com community scientists or like science enthusiasts maybe, um, especially like in the mushroom growing community, people were talking about looking for literature inside of Korean journals and trying to bring over those lessons into their practice. Um, and so, yeah, and so I felt like um, it would be a good, it, this would be a good group to engage those discussions and figure out how I could enable um, science that's being done in other languages to um, move over, yeah, to be translated for folks that are maybe practice, maybe not necessarily um, creating published works, but are like practitioners in their own world and like looking to the diversity of literature that's out there in order to learn certain lessons. Um, and yeah, and so I started coming to the meetings and I've been slowly understanding um, how this group comes together and I'm excited to see where, where we go with that. Yeah, communities um, all need a, uh, how is it like, a, yeah, a, a core team to keep things active and then um, get engaging everybody in the community once in a while as opportunity and capacity allows. Um, yeah. But it's it's a it's a lovely community um, to be in, and it's like for me it's astonishing. Even if I cannot attend each and every meeting, but the amount of resources that are being collected and the discussions that we come up with, and also through the exchange, the amount of um, events that we learn about in around the topic of translating science, um, yeah even though it's still a niche topic, unfortunately, like I would say, or it's, it deserves much more light than it gets currently, but um, there's still a lot of initiatives that we keep running into and learning and hearing about amongst each other and trying to disseminate further through the work in the group. Victor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to say that Dani might be quite typical for the second wave, uh, having found us on, on the 31st. It's a really nice, constructive group with lots of activists. And I think quite a number of people found us that way. Yeah, and many more will find us that way now that the other network is collapsing. <laughs> um, yeah, I am operating a, a Mastodon server for scientists, um, and it has completely exploded. We used um, to have something like 100 people, and now it's already over 5,000. Wow. <laughs> Okay, and more to come. It's, it's a continuous transition. And Jennifer, what's your connection? Yeah, uh, thanks. Uh, my background is in teaching and doing research in public policy, um, and specifically within public policy, um, science and technology policy. 
Um, so recently I've been focused on a lot of open knowledge movements like um, open education, open data, and especially open science, um, as well as civic technology. So um, I developed a um, online course, of, I call it the open syllabus for teaching open science through the UNESCO recommendation on open science. And that got me, um, I've read everything, every reading recommended on that syllabus I've read recently and um, got me really reflecting on the international nature of open science and the, also the various issues of, of language justice. Um, and I'm very interested in the question of what are the roles of different sectors in multilingual science. So what is the role of markets? Um, what is, you know, Google just going to build a machine to automatically translate? Um, and what is the role of governments? And then is there a role, for example, for um, civil society, philanthropy, um, volunteerism? Um, I think I learned about the group from um, hearing Victor speak at um, one or more online conferences. And, um, and thanks also for the reminder about the uh, Mastodon server, because I think it's time for me to switch instances. <laughs> and uh, I'll be um, checking that out soon. Yeah, same here. I've been trying to set up um, or find one as well. But yeah, coming, coming your way. And it's good to know that you have your own that we can all jump on if capacity allows, or as long as. Um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned um, the open science recommendation, but Victor, please. Mm -hmm. I was thinking there might be two more members of the group who have interesting stories illustrating what we are doing. Mm. Um, one is Dasapta from Indonesia, and he is especially interested because he wants to make science more accessible from people from non-English speaking countries um, to level the playing field. Um, and another member is Ben, from America, and he is especially interested in making sure that people do not ignore all the scientific findings we already have um, in other languages. So mm -hmm. he's working a lot on turbulence, which is a field where Russia is really strong. And there's so much scientific literature out there in Russian. And if you ignore that, um, you're doing less good science um, and do, do, do up, you do double work. Mm. So those are also motivations for translation. Yeah, that's also something that I heard firsthand from a colleague um, who is American studying um, linguistics in Germany. And she mentioned to me that she thought she was the like studying a niche project very much. So she thought she was the only researcher on this very planet studying it. But obviously and unconsciously or consciously she only looked at english-speaking literature about that research topic and then she ran into or was directed to a, also in her case russian article from a couple of years ago on the very same mm. topic and that basically changed the whole dynamic of her research and also like because I think that's an assumption for many researchers, wherever, like wherever in the world, for many of us who now think we have to publish in English and then ignore all the research output in other languages. Even though most researchers, I don't know the ratio, but I would say still most researchers are non-native English speakers. So we all have to 
um, learn English and practice English and learn how to how to communicate. But then again, and then we also forget or we unlearn to look into the research output in our mother tongues. And that's quite a, yeah, quite a fail. <laughs> and vice versa, Jennifer and, Dan oh yeah, Danny, please. I, I just wanted to add to what Victor was saying, because I, I, Ben is someone who I have been in uh, many meetings with uh, mm. through the course of what translated science. And I think that's a very, he was also a very interesting stakeholder because he's coming from the patent office background and, and seeing that like, um, like it, it's very interesting to see all the different stakeholders, I guess, that are involved. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say that something that I've learned through my time uh, with um, Translate Science is sort of all the different stakeholders that uh, ha have something to gain by the initiative of translating science more broadly. And specifically, this was catalyzed by seeing um, Ben's work in, in, in the patent office. Um, and so like there's, there are, there are many different people that uh, would like to interact. You know, I'm talking, when I think about people that are benefiting from translations, I'm thinking about like my community, English speaking, you know, mushroom cultivation or whatever within this DIY science community. But, but there's so many that stand to gain something from um, having the work translated and more widely accessible. Um, and I think that that's just like, yeah, that's been a very um, educational and interesting um, uh, takeaway that I've gained from participating in this group. Mm. Yeah, because is it also that the many patents are being written in the respective language in the respective countries? So then, so there is also a lot of knowledge captured there, which can, which is still openly described in another language, but can be used for research, not, necess not necessary for implementation, but um, allows for communication between different stakeholder groups. Um, Victor? Yeah, so in my field, a lot of information on how climate measurements were made are in the national language. The scientific mm -hmm. publications are typically in English, but if you really want to go through the details, um, which you need to make accurate assessments of how the climate changed, um, then you typically need local language skills mm. yeah. or a translation. Makes makes a lot of sense. I also just run a course, or currently run a course over six weeks, where um, several people are working into or looking into biodiversity and need for their research need to interact with the local farmers here in Germany. And they're not necessarily German researchers. <laughs> so there's also a language barrier there. If people come from wherever in the world to, to another country and then um, yeah, do research in a, on a regional level, on a local level, then yeah. And, and that's also what I heard. And it was so sad to hear how almost ignorant academics can be. I wouldn't blame the PhD student, but how like some researchers being sent to countries without even bothering to learn the language and get to know or get in touch with the local communities and stakeholders, just doing research from a kind of meta perspective. And then like making conclusions and assumptions based on their observations um, when, they, when they're only visiting for a super short, amount of time. 
where those of us who probably worked or or like I've like knowing that I'm not the only one, but with the experience I made as an Erasmus student, and I've lived for two years in Sweden, it takes like it takes years to get to know a culture and the constellation of a society and learning to read and understand into what you see. So so that's almost non-scientific as an approach. If you do research on a local level without engaging in the respective language also, or expecting the stakeholders locally to learn English so that you can, or we can engage with them. That's, that's sometimes possible probably, if you're lucky on, or in certain countries, but in others, why? Like, why make that assumption? So I also thought, if a researcher makes a commitment to move to another country for a research project, then it should be a default package package or piece in the package to, of course, learn the language. Um, and then also mm -hmm. ensure that some that like some output is being disseminated in in that language. But how how difficult is that then, like on a human level, to learn a language on a short time frame to really understand it to a depth that research demands well, that makes sense i mean that's very personal i guess like from a personal constituency or like how easy it is for any of us to to learn a language but maybe it's also very technical and can it be measured like can can we make assumptions of what's needed to learn a language, or I think it's also part of, or knowing that that's also part of the resource, resources in the Translate Science project. How can we materialize multilingualism in academia or translation of research for the various purposes? What tools and workflows do we have at hand that we've observed and collected and can now disseminate further? Who would, who would like to speak to that? Hard question, but I guess it does depends a lot on the field. Um, in my case, I think I just need quite rudimentary German to be able to interpret um, all the information on how German weather stations would have changed. Um, you have a bill for a new instrument. Ah, probably the instrument changed. Um, there's not much subtlety there. In other fields, you might really have to be able to, to communicate very well with local people and understand how they are thinking. So I guess it depends a lot on the field. Hmm. Yeah, um, one of the things that really interests me is the role of technology in our multilingual communication and how um, it creates the potential to kind of shift the expectation in interesting ways between the producer of a communication and the consumer of the communication and who has the, who should be bearing the burden of moving from one language to another and how much of that should take place, you know, within the, the mind of a person and how much of that we can um, use a tool like a technology to um, to to carry out, um, I think it's important to be mindful of what are the power dynamics in those interactions and who has access to the technology 
and then also the weaknesses and biases that might go undetected in when you use technology to translate. But it really has the potential to just transform um, our abilities to interact around the world. Mm. Yeah, I agree. But um, like, in, not but, and in all the conversations that I've had in courses with you guys and in various con um, contexts, like I think the common agreement was, yes, we can use machine translations to support the process and to gain like primary um, access to the content, but then to accurately translate um, translation is rather also to be classified as its own publication because with the assumptions and the the resource of pre-existing knowledge in that other language culturally derived is is more of an interpretation into another language also probably research topic specific for some topics more than for others but language also care like language is used to embed information and the embedding um, of information uses phrases and phrases are usually culturally de derived and have meaning and some phrases can be um, translated one to one others not so you need to find the what's the word yeah, like you cannot just one-to-one um, -one translate from English to another language in many cases, but you need to find what what's the what other phrase in another language would would basically carry that meaning for the piece of information that we want to transfer here. So in that sense, and also like, but just by what's what's the technique called? Like if you rephrase even in one one and the same language. It often happens that you bring in your own assumptions and your own experience into other people's other people's research um, claims or findings, and thereby alter the results. And that's that's okay. I think that's also part of the scientific discourse process. I just feel that we need to be aware that there might be an, a change of of the outcome. Um, to to a certain degree, I don't know. So basically, my question is, and that's just a food for thought, kind of, or maybe for a few minutes discussion, if you agree. Like, to to do you agree or disagree, basically, or what else can we say here? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's interesting because if you think about it, if I mean, you and I, if we're speaking from different first language. Um, positions, but yet we're conversing in English, um, or if we were to converse in another language that we both speak, just, just because there's no computer involved, I don't think that means that the process that you're talking about can't happen, because, um, you know, language kind of prepares us to understand things in different ways. Mm -hmm. And it does, when you bring in the computer, and the automatic translation, you would you don't really know what you're bringing in. You are bringing in some kind of a third party, and mm -hmm. in fact, even like a whole host of parties that were part of whatever data set was used to train the automatic translator. You don't know 
what you've brought in. Um, but it's the, the existence of the machine translation, we kind of can't ignore it. Mm -hmm. um, we don't want to rely on it overly. And so I think the, the role of that is, you know, really critical, but the ability for people to talk past each other, you know, honestly, is even true of people who speak the same language um, from birth. So <laughs> we humans are very good at misunderstanding one another. Um, and we'll probably continue to do that, um, you know, yeah. for, for as long as there are humans. Yeah, also, I didn't want to bring this into the discussion to find arguments against translating research, rather just to be aware that there's certain degrees of interpretation possibilities. And machine translation is, as you already say, I mean, can support, but is probably not, not for sure, not as fine-tuned as human-to-human -human interaction and translation, even though the vocabulary might be missing, but the human-to-human -human interaction allows for filling the gaps more than what a machine would be capable of. So I see machine translation, especially as a really good uh, labor saving device. Mm. Um, for many language pairs, machine translation is already quite good. And if then a human goes over it and corrects the last mistakes, yeah. um, you make a translation much, much more efficiently than when you would do everything from scratch. And I think that opens up an entire world of uh, volunteers translating articles, um, where in the past it would have been a quite big job to translate an article. You can nowadays do that in, in just a few hours. Um, and that makes it much more attractive mm. as a contribution to your scientific community to make a translation. Um, and maybe I can add, um, we also have a blog uh, as Translate Science. And I think the last blog post was about some of the typical errors machine translation makes. And if you're then a human correcting such a machine translated text, those are things to watch out for. Hmm. I also think like, you know, how, how preprints nowadays fill in a gap in the publishing workflow by allowing versioning and research output to turn into living documents that can continue to live as long as there's funding for the research to be done. <laughs> um, and like by one and the same group. And I just feel that with translations, if we treat them like preprints and they can be generated as a primary translation and stay open for comments, optimization, reinterpretation, um, and correction basically by the community, then we might have a good chance to get as accurate as possible um, translated versions of research output um, by acknowledging everybody's contribution and also being then able to learn about regional specific specificities in how people from different parts of the world interpret certain research content. Um, so, so uh, Victor, you mentioned the blog, and the blog is really like the um, or many gates to the resource list that are in the wiki now to be found. With um, when I checked last, like uh, 
a quite exhaustive um, narrative of the history of translating science, which I wasn't aware of, where um, I think what, what really blew my mind is that research trans translation of research, I mean, not so mind-blowing if you think about it, of course, like just 50 years ago or longer or 70 was pretty common that um, there were like there, like many researchers were by default bilingual to be able to communicate their outputs to another community. Maybe not every researcher, but those who yeah, were successful and internationally renowned. Do you want to elaborate on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so something like, I think only a hundred years ago, um, I think it was a quite common part of a PhD thesis in America to translate a foreign language article into English. Um, that was a skill a PhD student was supposed to have and <laughs> to demonstrate by making a translation. So it was basically, um, yeah. So times really have changed. Yeah. And then in the second world, during the Cold War, sorry, um, mm -hmm. there were quite a lot of professional uh, translations being made to make sure that Western science kept up with what the Soviet Union was doing. Mm. Um, so it was a bit one-sided, um, just two languages in most cases, what they were doing, but that was an enormous operation, an enormous amount of translations being made. Mm. Um, I'm also thinking to what we discussed earlier, Jennifer, when you mentioned um, like translating research as as a form of open science, I think it should be added as one of the pillars for the open science principles, because language barrier is a, or the language barrier is a, you know, a clo closed gate, basically, um, as we all experience in either direction. But maybe it's not as, or maybe it is system, system, system driven, as we all criticize now these systems, <laughs> which, which hampers the scientific freedom mm. yeah i would love to see more attention to language issues in in open science and there are so many ways where that can be done um, whether it's giving scientists um, like access to develop foreign language skills um, or um, use of technology production of translation um, even I think there's space in making um, more readily available or funded or supported proofreading skills because, uh, for example, I feel fairly proficient in Spanish, but I know that if I were to write an academic paper in Spanish, there would be grammatical problems that I don't usually have in English. It would be a, would be a real challenge for me to do that. and. Fortunately, there's never been any real pressure on me to produce an academic paper in Spanish, but people in, in all fields feel pressure to produce their academic papers in English. And mostly they can get the main ideas across. But one thing that does interest me though, is they don't need to get their um, ideas across just to English speakers, but they're using English to communicate with people who have learned English coming from many other different languages. And I haven't seen actual data on this, but intuitively it seems to me that people will 
that that will work better if there's real attention to the consistency of the English document that's produced. That um, someone who starts from Spanish, translates to English, where they tend to make English grammar mistakes might be particularly confusing to someone who learned English from, from Arabic or from um, Chinese or a language that's very different um, from Spanish. Mm. So I, I think that that's a space. And of course, there are like automatic um, grammar checking um, programs in English as well. But for scientific documents, you probably don't want to just let those go unsupervised. Yeah. Yeah, also here, um, human factor is very much appreciated, Victor. So I'm Dutch, and we basically learn English from television as, as young kids. So we're relatively fluent, um, but still have probably produced many um, grammar mistakes and have a limited vocabulary when we use it actively. Um, but still, it's, it's relatively good. Um, and my impression is when I read the scientific literature that when somebody writes really good English, um, there are more, much more likely small mistakes in the article. So my impression is that peer reviewers are much less vigilant when they can smoothly read a text than when they read a text by a non-native speaker, um, which would be a barrier to entry for non-native speakers. Mm. Um, I don't know how others see that, but I, it's of course hard to quantify, but I have the feeling that well-written articles are typically the ones with the most small mistakes. Mm. Yeah, again, again, so chair from my experience in the scientific writing courses that for once, um, or there's also research about reviews and editorial boards or, or reviewers rejecting or suggesting for a rejection if the English is not good enough. And that's usually what many non-native English speaker authors um, have to deal with, where the reviewers don't even look at the results section to see if the research itself is sound. If and sometimes yeah, right. they can be picky about commas or not in the right place or whatever, where there's no actual comma rules, just recommendations, like because these are all fluent um, stylistic tools. And and the other thing I wanted to mention is that for the proofreading in non-native English research or setting research institutes is usually those handful of native English speakers who have to do all the editorial work before a paper is being submitted <laughs> that can end up for a whole lot of volunteering. <laughs> Victor? Yeah. So for my PhD, I had really luck. I was at Delft University of Technology and at my faculty, they had a translator to do proofreading. Mm. And that really made the articles a lot better. Um, in fact, she all even sometimes made really good comments on the science, mm. um, but especially the language. It was much more fluent. And I guess the university did that to get more published, more papers published. For sure. Um, yeah, that's it's so a bit cynical fun. motive, maybe. But still, I wanted to mention it in the hope that more universities do this. Yeah. It really helps a lot. Yeah. I I also agree, and I read somewhere that wouldn't that, however, um, pay uh, add an imbalance because it adds for more budgeting, like you would have to budget and, and pay that um, service. 
You can also nowadays pay publishers to the for you, and they probably overcharge, I would suspect, or some of them. Maybe not the university um, presses, but certain corporate publishers will probably do that. And then there's independent services, um, one of which was also represented earlier in this podcast, um, with Avi Steinman and um, academic language experts. Um, and yeah, so there's there's a handful of such services um, popping up in the landscape, which is good, but then wouldn't that also further increase the imbalance for available budgets for non-native versus um, like, you know, English speaking country institution? Yeah, I think this is an area where it's really important to think about the resource and power balances, the access to resources. And it's a place where I do think we need more. Um, one piece that we haven't brought in here yet, and I know you all know this, but most peer reviewing that's done is uncompensated, right? So oh. even if you weren't having a discussion about language, if we had a bunch of academics and we're talking about the peer review process, one of the things that would come up right away is that almost always this is unpaid work. And to me, it does seem that it, it's a lot harder to ask someone to do a, an unpaid review of an article that's not written clearly. Hmm. When you think about where in the process does it make sense to improve the language? And it might make sense to improve the language before it goes to peer review. Um, because how, how rigorously can someone really peer review something if they're having a hard time understanding it and it's unpaid work on top of their already, you know, full slate of commitments that, that academics have. Um, so the system that, that Victor described as being available to him seems like a really great system, but are we making that type of support available to the people who aren't, um, you know, doing already well-resourced science? Yeah, I was still, as you were asking that or, or mentioning that, I was just running a few scenarios in my head and I was thinking, well, then maybe, well, we would need preprints so for research by non-native English speakers to be written in their mother tongue, translated into yet another preprint version slash translation of that article, and that then being community commented. Again, it's it's it would still be volunteer effort or people who are most likely on paid positions, but need to carve time out of their anyways overcharged um, research schedule and workloads to, to comment on, but then the workload would be um, distributed amongst many shoulders and not sitting with one or two. But then, yeah. Danny, what are your thoughts on this? <laughs> it's a bit of a dilemma and, and who's paying for that service? And, and can it not also be a default? Sorry, just to add that because you're also American. Um, like, sorry, Jennifer and Danny. Um, like or native speak native English speakers for that purpose. Um, would you mind having by default to translate, even though you publish in English and speak English as a mother tongue? Um, would you mind by default generating a a translation of the summary or the whole research article that you produce? 
just as much as non-native English speakers would have to. Like, I think to have that as a default, bilingual by default, would, for once, like, put everybody in the same position, <laughs> and second, would help um, democracy and openness when it can, or lower one language barrier, at least. Okay, Danny, this is your call. Good luck. Well, 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 well so, so something that this, this line of conversation is reminding me is that like the reason I think we come together as Translate Science is to advocate for, for these translation issues and, and to think through them. And mm -hmm. what Jennifer was saying, like, um, like maybe there's, it, it might even just extend to the way in which we write in English, <laughs> that there are easier formats, right? There, there's more legible ways to write that make it uh, more amenable towards um, translation. Mm -hmm. And so like, that's something that has to be thought of as well. Um, in terms of who should pay, I think that this is like, again, like this goes into the advocacy part of, of our Translate Science Initiative is um, being aware that there are, there are power dynamics at play means that when we ask for change, we have to not put the burden on, um, on individuals that maybe have previously been shut out from the power structures that exist inside of um, the scientific academy. Um, and I guess I don't know, right? Like, I think at the end of the day, like, I'm not really, I'm, I'm not really sure. And that's why I'm here with this group is, is to talk this through collectively um, so that we, we can, we can recommend actions. And I think like the structure in the way that we're set up right now, and I'm hoping this will also change as we, as we continue to grow together is that we can put these, um, we can put these perspectives in blog articles, publish on our website. We're maintaining a resource, a wiki, where, where people can read through the discussions that have been had as a group, um, and then perhaps find find ways to contribute their thoughts in, into this ongoing discussion. Um, so yeah, so I hope that's not too much like just nothing that I said, like kind of nebulous, but I am trying to tie together some of the, the different points that have come across here, um, maybe in a way that would be useful for a listener to, 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 to hear. Yeah, no, it's, it's perfect how you say that, because it also reminds us that we're not here to provide all the solutions. We're giving incentives and food for thought or sensitize really. That's, I think, the main mission, as you also said, um, to sensitize the community at large about the issues that we see and experience with the lack of translate translation efforts. Jennifer. Yeah, I would say that personally, I would love to um, produce a a Spanish language summary of, of my research. Personally, I would have found that delightful. I've written a few pieces of data journalism for a website called Apolitical and they routinely translate everything into French and Spanish. So I actually do have a few things that were uh, published into other languages. Um, but in terms of how it would go over in the US specifically, I mean, our PhD programs are removing foreign language requirements. So to the extent, I mean, I think that well-resourced people um, would probably have departments that would translate it into the most um, citation advantageous language. For example, I've um, worked with a lot closely with a lot of economists and they tend to maximize their returns on everything they do. 
so they would look and you know they would probably just purchase in bulk the ability to translate their abstracts into um maybe german or whatever they saw as the next most advantageous language for their research and they'd be done with it um and I'm not sure if that would be, you know, that might well be better than where we are right now, but it, it, you, you pose a really interesting question about the many ways it might play out. Mm. Victor, like we, or you pretty much suggested, and we all democratically decided to put the website onto a wiki and design it as a wiki. So it has the potential also to be cross translated and what I like about um, the designers of Wikipedia, Wikidata, or this Wiki, Wikimedia projects, um, mm -hmm. is that I mean they're designed for multilingualism and for networking, for intersectoral knowledge and data exchange. This is that also part of, or is this a vision where we can? I mean, we had a conversation also with people from people from Wikimedia. Um, so thinking about, okay, where is Translate Science going next? Like, what's our mission? And I'm asking you as, as a driving force behind the project. Um, in terms of interoperability with other systems, in terms of functionality and feasibility for utilizing and facilitating the yeah, the knowledge and data exchange across sectors as well, and primarily also uh, across languages, te technologically facilitated. Mm -hmm. So Wikipedia, I don't know whether they are designed for multilingualism. Basically, every Wikipedia version is its own separate homepage. Um, no, more they are nowadays working on, on stuff like abstract Wikipedia, where you would write the one article once, but then in a way that you can automatically translate it in many languages. So Wikipedia is really active when it comes to multiple languages, um, but I'm not sure whether they are designed to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a really wonderful global um, group of volunteers. And in that way, I think it could also be an inspiration um, for, um, the system we are currently thinking of, of designing to mm. translate abstracts. Maybe Jennifer can talk a bit more about that. Yeah, I'm going to just speak really briefly here about something that we hope to explore further in the coming year. But I've drafted a, a process that we'd love to get um, feedback from multiple perspectives on with the idea that there may be a role for volunteers to translate abstracts in a way that um, maximizes their availability. Um, the process would start with authors volunteering to produce a, um, a structured summary, like a structured abstract of their, um, of their paper, um, where, and nominating it for entering into our volunteer translate translation process, they would, um, we would prioritize um, translating papers that exemplify good open science practices. But then once a paper was accepted into the process, 
we would work um, starting from a um, machine translation and then um, with volunteer human reviewers produce um, what um, Danny had mentioned, the fact that you can word things in different ways to be more amenable tra to translation. So we would, the, the proposal as it's um, structured right now uses English as the sort of um, central language from which other translations would be produced. So someone might write their, they would write their paper in, in their um, chosen language, uh, perhaps Spanish. Then they would write a structured summary in Spanish, um, make a first attempt to translate it to English using machine translation um, and then that's where the authors, the authors would give it one more review to see if there were any obvious problems with the machine translation. Mm -hmm. Then their abstract, um, uh, sort of a first draft English would enter our process. The volunteer translator would review it for mistakes in English, as well as constructions that were unnecessarily complicated. And then once we had this um, like international English or global English structured abstract, we would publish that as a document in um, a platform such as um, Zenodo. And then it would be available for um, people who speak other languages fluently to translate from English into their um, home language. And the idea there would be to focus on people um, translating into their uh, most comfortable language. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that that's what we're um, looking for feedback on at this time. Um, I'm sure there are refinements that we've already gotten a lot of good suggestions to help adjust this process, but mm -hmm. we're excited to see what um, might develop. Excellent. Cool. Thank you so much, guys. It's been enlightening also for me again. Like, it's so nice to have such opportunities to talk. Like, we have us on the, I think it's bi weekly currently um, meetings, community meetings. Um, we will place the links, obviously, um, to the website, the wiki, the blog, blog, site, blog page, and Mastodon, um, where, you, where you find us and we can follow us. You can also join us um, if you would like to join the community and help us um, brainstorm and, and ideate around multilingualism and translation of research output. Um, any yeah. last comments before we jump off? Just a quick round. Um, or maybe one more last big project. Yes. Um, next to the translation of abstracts. Um, we are also building a system to make it easier to find translations. So a database where you can put in an article and then see whether there are any translations. Thank you. Okay, Danny? Some last words? No? Okay, because Jennifer also needed to jump, I think. Yeah, I think we can just um, call it a, a conversation. Thank you so much, guys. It's been, it's been quite a, we're touching on, on almost all of the issues and opportunities and there's there's still a lot to explore. Um, it's been exciting. Thanks for making time for this. Thank you. And everyone is welcome to join us. Yes, we're looking forward <laughs> to seeing many new faces in, in the big blue button world and pediverse. <laughs> All right. Cool. Thank you. Okay.
拜拜。